Uh, I'm also really excited for the sermon series that Justin was talking about that's coming up. And it may not seem like it at first, but this message is actually a, a pretty good foundation for what we're going to be talking about. How Jesus is the true and better. And uh, I'm really excited for that sermon, but I know uh, that sermon series, but I know Justin is much more excited than me. Um, I was I was trying to sermon prep this week in the office and uh, about every 90 seconds, Justin would be like, dude, you got a minute? He's reading this book about, you know, Jesus in the Old Testament and all the scriptures. And so if this sermon is no good. It's his fault, not mine. Um, because, uh, he was, he was a huge distraction, <laughs> but, uh, no, the, the, the Lord is faithful and, um, uh, it was, it was really good. I mean, I'm really excited to be diving into the word today. For those of you who don't know all the people in these, uh, I think this is burnt orange. I'm colorblind. I don't know. I think this is burnt orange, but th- these shirts, these Dino shirts, we had Dino this past weekend, which means a couple of things. It means that the Lord was working and we saw the Lord do a lot of great things. It also means that I am very, 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 very tired. Um, I'm very exalted. So please show me grace when I stutter or slur my words or uh, just misspeak altogether, say something that's completely wrong. Please show me grace um, and pull me aside after worship uh, and ask me what I meant. So all jokes aside, though, this weekend really was super, super incredible. Um, It's so encouraging for me to see, um, like to visually see growth in students, like to, to see how the Lord has Change and transform their lives in the way that they they live, and it's uh it's, it's just so encouraging to see. The theme over the course of this weekend was Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough, and this honestly should be the theme of all of our lives, right? When you hear the word enough in this statement, what it means is that when you have Jesus, you're no longer lacking anything because you have all you need in Him. He is. Enough. But here's a question that I want each of us to consider today. And don't just blurt out an answer. Like, I really want you to think about what I'm asking you. Is Jesus enough? I know you know he's enough in your head. Like, I know we all know that. But is he really enough? Like, if people looked at your life, would they really be able to tell that Jesus is enough for you? If they looked at how you loved people, would they really be able to tell that Jesus is enough? If they looked at how hard you worked at your job and how much you complained, would they really be able to tell that Jesus is enough? If they looked at how deeply you cared for your family, would they really be able to tell that Jesus is enough? If they looked at how joyful you are, would they really be able to tell That Jesus is enough. If they looked at what you prioritize day to day, week to week in your life, would they really be able to tell that Jesus is enough? If we could put you under an x-ray machine and examine your heart and see what your heart beats for, would we be able to see that Jesus really is enough for you? We all claim it. But do you really believe it to the point that it's transforming your life? This is a sharp question, really sharp question. And my hope today is that we would evaluate how much we really behold Jesus above everything else. And through the word that we would be truly encouraged and transformed by the reality that Jesus is enough. And church, let me leave no doubt. Jesus is enough. For everything. As we dive into Philippians 3, 
Here's the truth I pray that we would see and rejoice in. Jesus is enough to transform our lives, our longings, and to make a transformation that lasts. Jesus is enough to transform our lives, what we long for, and to make a transformation that is lasting. As you're turning to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, I don't think we do ourselves justice if we didn't realistically answer the question, why is Jesus enough? We say he's enough, but why can we be sure that this is true? Here's the answer that I would suggest. Jesus is good and Jesus is able. These are two aspects of Jesus's character that is that are worthy of worship. The Bible is consistently showing and reminding us over and over of these character traits of Christ. First, Jesus is good because he is the righteous one who has the ultimate love and the ultimate trustworthiness. Everything about Christ is good. First, John, chapter two, verse one says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is able Because of his great power over and through and in all things. Luke 137 tells us that nothing will be impossible with God. There's truly nothing that Jesus cannot do. He is good and he is able. In no way do these two things encompass all that Jesus is. But really, there's no words I could say that are sufficient to do that. These are simply a glimpse into the character of Christ that stand to support the reality that Jesus is enough. With that being said, let's dive into Philippians 3 together. So if you would please stand with me to honor the word of the Lord. We'll start in verse 7 of chapter 3 and we'll read through verse 11. Here's what the scripture says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you would illuminate it to us by the power of your spirit to see that Jesus is enough. And we will walk out of here changed and transformed because of how good and how able he is. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. So I don't know if you see it, but this passage is the epitome of Jesus is enough. We just read five verses, but over the next 30 minutes or so, I hope for us to see through this whole chapter that you guessed it. Jesus is enough. In this chapter, we see this truth on display in four different areas of our lives. You ready to dive in? All right, let's do this. So first we see Jesus is enough to save our souls. The truth in verses nine to 10 is the beginning of everything for Paul, the beginning of everything. And it's the beginning of everything for us. Let's look at these two verses together. We really can't miss this. 
Paul says, and be found in Christ. His goal is to be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here's the reality, church. We won't see the beauty of this truth until we see the depth of our problem. We have a deep, deep problem called sin. And the reason Paul saw the glory of this truth so clearly is because he actually called himself the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. He wasn't just saying this is lip service. He actually believed he was the worst sinner to ever walk the earth. He understood the weight of his problem. We are sinners. We have sinned against the holy, glorious, righteous God of the universe. This truth should make our bones shake. It should make us tremble to the core. The fact that I'm a sinner is terrifying and sobering. Because this deep sin problem results in our condemnation. And there's no way for us to escape this condemnation apart from salvation. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 8. One, there's therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So up to this point, I'm sure we're all on the same page. But this is where some of our thinking and our living begins to differ. When we ask questions like, how does salvation happen? How are we truly saved? What must happen for us to be saved? These are a lot of really big questions. But before we look at the right answer, I want to look at some of the wrong ones. So first... We cannot be saved by anything that we do. You can come to church gatherings as much as you want. You can feed the homeless and do good deeds as much as you want. You can read your Bible and pray as much as you want. None of these things are sufficient to save. Because of our sin, we owe a debt that we are incapable of paying. Second... We cannot be saved by just trusting any religion. Buddha does not have the power to save anyone's soul. Mohammed does not have the ability to grant salvation. Allah does not have the authority to forgive your sin. There is no one with the compassion and the ability to save your soul apart from the God of the Bible. And third... We cannot be saved due to oblivion. Oblivion means being unaware or unconscious of the truth. Specifically in this case, the truth of the gospel. Listen to me. It does not matter if Jimmy from Africa lived a great 80-year life and loved people and was a great father and a great friend. If he doesn't hear the gospel of Jesus, it will never be enough to save his soul. It does not matter... If Sarah from India is the best mom and wife and employee and boss and worker that you could ask for. If she never hears the truth of the gospel, she will die with no hope. Scripture is very clear that God's saving grace is given to those who explicitly trust in Christ. On a side note, this reality is why it's so urgent that we go to the nations. Because they need to hear the hope of the gospel. Without it, they will perish. So this brings us to the right answer to the question, how can we be saved? Here's the answer. 
We're saved by Christ and Christ alone. In John 14, 6, Jesus himself tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can this be? Why is this so? Like I said before, our sin has resulted in a debt that we simply don't have the means or the ability to pay. God requires perfect righteousness and holiness in order to be saved. And this is not something that we can accomplish ever. But you want to hear some good news? Jesus can and he did accomplish this. He lived the perfect, righteous, holy life that we could only dream of living. And more than just living it, he offers that righteousness to us by taking the wrath that we deserve so that we can enjoy salvation in his name. This is precisely what Paul means when he says in verse 9, I long to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own according to the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. In other words, Paul is saying he is in Christ because he is fully dependent on Christ's righteousness to cover him. Paul is saved in no part by his own hand, but solely and completely because of the work of Jesus, his Savior. Which brings us back to the beautiful truth in this text. Jesus is enough. He's enough to pay our debt and he's enough to save our souls. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? If not, I can assure you, Jesus is enough to save you. And when you're saved by Jesus and begin walking in fellowship with him, it brings us to our second point. Jesus is enough to satisfy our hearts. Everyone in the world, every human on earth is seeking satisfaction. Everyone. Do you know that? I mean, every single person on earth is longing for satisfaction. Some people are seeking satisfaction in a great career that provides lots of joy and happiness. Some people are seeking satisfaction in financial security. So they work whatever job that they must in order to make the most money. Some people are seeking satisfaction in relationships with friends or maybe even in the love of a significant other. Some people are seeking satisfaction in popularity or being well known and loved by lots of people. Some people are seeking satisfaction by doing anything they can to escape reality and ignore the struggles and circumstances they find themselves in. Some people are seeking satisfaction in the politician that sits in the White House. Some people are seeking satisfaction in everything that the world wants to say about them. No matter who it is or how they're doing it, everyone is seeking satisfaction. The problem with this is that almost all people are seeking satisfaction in the wrong things. Almost all of what people are seeking satisfaction in are the things of the flesh. The enemy has done such a great job of strategically making all the things of the world look so appealing. We look at famous celebrities with a lot of money or maybe even closer to home than that. We look at people that we know who are better off than us and we want their life. We want what they have. But this ideology 
of placing so much value in the things of the flesh is something Paul directly opposes in this text. Look at verses three through eight. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Man, these verses fire me up while the enemy is telling us to find all of our fulfillment and satisfaction in the flesh. Paul says, you place no confidence in anything that is not of Jesus. Now, at this point, you might think, well, Paul doesn't get it. He didn't have everything that I have. He didn't have all the financial opportunities that I have or or all the money or all the friends or all the family, nor the opportunity to get on a plane and go overseas in 10 hours and chase everything I want to chase. That could not be more wrong. Paul quickly reminds us about who he was and all that he had before he met Jesus on the Damascus road. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to place confidence in the flesh, don't you worry one bit because I have more. Essentially, in my own words, what Paul says is, I am who everyone else wishes they could have been. I was born in the best tribe in the world. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Everyone of the law looked up to me. I did everything that was expected and was well on my way to becoming one of the top dogs of the Jewish faith. And one of, literally, the most revered people in the world. That's who Paul was. He literally had it all. But then what does he say? I counted all of it. All of it as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul says, I count everything as rubbish, as dung for the sake of gaining King Jesus. Paul could do this because he knew that Jesus was enough to satisfy him. Nothing could compare to the value and satisfaction of knowing Jesus because he is worthy. He is worthy of our lives, according to Paul's words. Nothing of the world can ever satisfy us. Only he can. How many of you have seen the movie The Greatest Showman? Um, If you're like me, you don't like musicals. Um, And so I watched it, uh, didn't like it, but I love the soundtrack. Does anybody know the soundtrack of the music? If you don't know the soundtrack of the music, if you do, you definitely know the song. If you don't, um, you're about, you might already know it, but you're about to learn it and you're going to fall in love with it, I'm sure. I love this song so much. Um, I'm not going to sing it. If you ask my wife, she would be able to tell you that about every time this song plays, I belt out as loud as I can in song. Um, in fact, I'll confess, this past week, if you would have been here at the right time, you would have heard Justin and I 
blaring never enough from the top of our lungs from the office. I mean, we were shouting the lyrics to this song from the top of our lungs. And uh, I promise you, I know at least for myself, I am secure in my manhood. So I'm okay with saying that to you guys. But this is a great song. But, but in, all, in all seriousness, this song is, uh, is one that I think has a lot of, to teach us. And so I wanted to play a little snippet. I'm going to mute my mic so you can't hear me singing it. Um, I want to play a little snippet of it, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. Listen to these lyrics. Justin, uh, Justin wouldn't let me play the whole song. Sorry, guys. Um, man, I love, I, I love that song. Like, I literally love, like, it, secular songs, top three, all time. Um, I'm serious. Uh, and in this song, for context, this woman is essentially saying that without her significant other in her life, she could have anything in the world, but it would never be enough for her. It would never satisfy her. She could have all the spotlights in the world shining directly at her. She could have towers of gold. She could have the whole earth in the palm of her hands. She could even steal all the stars from the night sky and have them to herself. But it would never be enough to satisfy her if she didn't have him. I know some of our teenagers feel like they can really relate to this right now in their life. Um, but I'm sure a lot of us can relate to this too. But let me ask you something. Is this the heart that you have towards Jesus? Like, do you genuinely feel like you could have everything in the world, but if you didn't have Jesus, then you would never have enough? Do you really feel that way? On the flip side, do you genuinely feel like if all you had was Jesus, then he would be enough to satisfy you? Sure, it may be easy to say yes to that question now while you still have everything. But what if you leave church today? And your spouse gets in a car crash and dies. What if you lost all of your kids in a house fire? What if you lost your job and your house and everything you own was laid to waste? What you say you believe about Jesus, if it was really put to the test today, if push really did come to shove, would it prove to be true in your life? you woke up tomorrow and every single thing about you was taken away except for Jesus, would he really be enough for you? There's another song I love about this topic. It's a rap song. I'm not going to rap it. 
not Pedro. But when you listen to the words I'm going to say, consider the life of Job um, in, in these lyrics. The artist says, if in one unfortunate moment you took everything that I own, everything you've given from heaven above and everything that I've ever known, if you stripped away my ministry, my influence, my reputation, my health, my happiness, my friends, my pride and my expectations, if you caused for me to suffer, or to suffer for the cause of the cross. If the cost of my allegiance was prison and all my freedoms were lost. If you take the breath from my lungs and make an end of my life. If you take the most precious part of me and take my kids and my wife. It would crush me. It would break me. It would suffocate and cause heartache. I would taste a bitter dark providence, but you would still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. And I can't even begin to imagine the sting that, that kind of pain brings. But I would never blame you for evil, even if you cause me pain. I came into this world with nothing. And when I die, it'll be the same. I will praise your name in the giving and taking away. Because if I have you, I can lose everything. And still consider again. Gosh, what a beautiful reality this is. The beautiful truth of the gospel for our lives right now in this very moment is that Jesus really is enough to satisfy us. If you haven't experienced this satisfaction, it's not because he is faulty. It's because your heart is. When Jesus saves us. And transforms our hearts, we will taste the deep satisfaction that only comes from knowing Him. Everything else is meaningless and worthless compared to our Savior and our King. Jesus is enough to satisfy you above all else. Is your life really a testament to this? As we rest in the satisfaction of Jesus... What we see next is that third, Jesus is enough to fuel our striving. He's enough to fuel our striving. Let's read verses 11 through 17 together. Paul says, my goal is that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So once Paul talks about the satisfaction of knowing Christ in Philippians three, he immediately immediately shifts from the satisfaction we have in Jesus to the way that he's striving for eternity with Jesus. He moves from rest to resolve. And it's not that these two things are in contrast with each other. It's the opposite. They work 
together. The reason Paul is so faithfully and radically striving towards, in his word, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ is because he is so deeply satisfied by Jesus. For example, in my life, I can confess that when I get home from the gym, I might spend, might spend a little too much time looking at myself in the mirror, looking at my gains. Um, my wife makes fun of me. Uh, and it's not that I'm full of myself and think that I'm the best looking person on earth. I'm not even the best looking person in this room. Justin's got me beat. <laughs> um, no, but, but really, the reason I like to look at my progress is because there is real satisfaction in seeing hard work pay off. Like there is real satisfaction in seeing results. And what do you think is the outcome of, of looking in the mirror and seeing this progress? I want to go to the gym and work even more so I can see even more progress. It's the satisfaction that fuels the striving. In the same way, Paul is so deeply satisfied in Jesus now that his heart beats to do everything he can to experience the deep joy and satisfaction of Christ in eternity. God, I would pay to hear from Paul right now how incredible being with Christ actually is. I mean, imagine what he would say, how he would say it. We think we know what it's like to be deeply satisfied in Christ, but in eternity... Man, I can guarantee you there will be no words. So as we think about Paul striving for eternity in heaven, and as he encourages us to imitate him in this pursuit, let's grasp the reality that the fuel for our striving is Jesus. We don't strive for heaven because we're escaping hell, sickness, and pain. We strive for heaven because in it, we get to spend an eternity with our beautiful, wonderful Savior and King. Now, Paul is not saying here that we have to work to attain this eternity. In verse 16, he says very clearly, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Our eternity has been secured by Christ's blood and nothing else. But what Paul is saying here is that as we pursue Christ more radically on earth, we will experience the joy of Christ more richly in heaven. As we pursue Christ deeply and radically on earth, we will experience the joy and satisfaction of Christ more deeply and richly in heaven. So knowing this reality and being fueled by the hope and excitement of being with King Jesus for eternity, here's what we learn from Paul. Paul actually says, the one thing I do and then he gives us two things. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, namely eternity. In horse racing, blinders are put on the sides of the horse faces so they don't get distracted by anything else around them. And so they'll run the race before them with complete and absolute focus. Church. We must, like Paul, put up gospel blinders, not being worried about or consumed with anything the world is trying to entice us with. Leaving behind the desires of the flesh and being focused on nothing more than doing everything we can for King Jesus on earth 
for the sake of our eternity with him. And trust me when I say this, looking to Jesus is all we need to motivate us to leave everything else behind in order to run hard after him. Once you've eaten a nice ribeye, McDonald's McNuggets just don't have the same appeal anymore. (laughs) Once we taste and see the goodness of Jesus, we know without a doubt that nothing can compare to him because he is enough. And as Paul exhorts us to follow the example we have in him, he shifts from this striving to a reminder of the great news of the work of Jesus, which is number four. Jesus is enough to secure our eternity. Look at verses 18 through 21. For many of whom of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. In these verses... Paul is giving us a contrast between those who have stopped striving for Jesus and those who still are. And I love the way Paul handles this reality. You can tell Paul is heartbroken over those who have stopped following Jesus. He literally tells us as he's writing these words, he is in tears over their hearts being in opposition to the cross. And then Paul, from a heart of compassion, reminds us of the result of this. And for anyone who isn't following Jesus, listen to these words. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Because their eyes are set on earthly things and they glory in their shame. But then Paul shifts from talking about the end of those who are pursuing the world to talking about the end of those who are pursuing Jesus. I love, I love how much Paul, how much confidence Paul writes with here. Not in himself, but in Jesus. He says, our citizenship, oh, oh, it's in heaven. And from that, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus, who will come and who will transform our bodies to be like his. Paul is so, so confident. Why? Because he tells us Jesus is going to transform us with the same power that gives him authority over all. Jesus, with all the authority that God has given him, has chosen to use it to transform us to be like him. How wonderful King Jesus really is. We have no need to create a backup plan. We can have full assurance that Jesus will do Exactly what he said he'll do. It is literally as good as done. So while we're striving for heaven, we don't need to feel the weight of securing anything because it's been completely secured by Jesus. His work on the cross was final. 
And his resurrection from the dead put the seal of approval on his work. And can you imagine the joy of seeing our Savior return for his people? How wonderful and magnificent this will be. I just want you to do me a favor. Close your eyes for a second. I want everybody to close your eyes. Think about this. Imagine this. King Jesus returns. And we as a people are surrounded by those we've read about throughout the Bible. We're shoulder to shoulder with heroes of the faith like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and King David and the prophet Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Daniel. And we're shoulder to shoulder with people like Hosea and Jonah and John the Baptist. And Peter and James and John and Timothy and the thousands of others that we don't have time to name. Shoulder to shoulder with all these people that we've read about who love and live for King Jesus. Imagine being lined up with a thousand generations of those who have trusted in him. And all of us in unison together singing, behold the Lamb of God. The Savior of the world who died so we could live. Behold Him. God, how beautiful that day is going to be. Church, I pray we would be a people shouting, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Knowing that He is enough to secure our eternity. And for all who know Him, You can look forward to eternity with excitement because he is good and confidence because he is able. Church, Jesus is enough. I hope as we spent time in the word this morning that there has been no doubt left on the table. He is enough for all things, past, present and future. And if you haven't been saved by Jesus, if you aren't walking in relationship with him, he is enough to save your soul. You can trust him and be saved, not because of your own righteousness, but in spite of how wicked you are. He lived a righteous, perfect life and then died so that you could have it for yourself. He is enough to save you. Will you trust him? And if you are a follower of Jesus, he is enough to satisfy you. In fact, nothing else can come close to measuring up to the satisfaction that Jesus brings. The satisfaction of the world compared to the satisfaction of Christ is like comparing the flame of a candle to the sun. It's it's so foolish to even try to justify Jesus will satisfy you. Don't look to anything else the world is saying is good for you because it will never fulfill you. Look to Jesus alone because he is enough. And as you look to Jesus to satisfy you, as you put up gospel blinders to all the distractions of the world and lay aside every weight and sin, run the race, striving towards the prize of eternity with Christ. As C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Rest in Jesus, church, and resolve to live your life for him. And as you do this, 
look to eternity and know that He has assuredly secured for us heaven and perfection and restoration and a firm foundation to place our feet on in Him and live with confidence knowing that only what we do for Him will last. Jesus is worthy and He is enough.